The Inside Story is a podcast that dives deep into the world of whistleblowing, uncovering the untold tales from behind closed doors. Join us as we explore the challenges and the impact of speaking up to stop harm. Our guest today is a woman I had the good fortune to be sat next to at a dinner party. I soon realized I was not only in good company, but in the company of someone who had the capacity to change things for the better, and indeed had already done so. Zelda Perkins, among many other things, is a whistleblower, who in 1998, while working as an assistant to Harvey Weinstein, told his company Miramax that Weinstein had attempted to rape a colleague. Zelda was subsequently made to leave her job and sign a non-disclosure agreement. Nearly 20 years later, Zelda broke her NDA, leading the way in speaking up against Weinstein to the press, helping bring him to justice and prompting a global swell in the Me Too movement. In September 2021, Zelda co-founded Can't Buy My Silence with Professor Julie McFarlane, an international campaign to end the misuse of NDAs, which has successfully helped make changes to legislation in the UK Ireland and Canada, and sparked a Legal Services Board investigation into the role lawyers play in the use of NDAs. Zelda, welcome to the Inside Story. Thank you for joining us. Not at all. We will come on to talk about Can't Buy My Silence and the impressive ground that the campaign has already covered. But firstly, if I may dial back to 1998 and ask you why you decided to blow the whistle all those years ago. Um, well, I didn't know that I was blowing the whistle. And I think this is one of, I think it's quite a common experience for people who do whistleblow or speak up, is that in that initial speaking up, they don't realise that they're doing something out of the ordinary. They think they're doing something normal. I certainly thought I was doing something totally normal. If your boss attacks one of your colleagues, you would imagine that reporting that and making sure that that was stopped would be normal behaviour. I think partly it was also to do with my youth and this was my first job. I was only 24 and still very naively, it turned out, <laughs> believed that, you know, right and wrong were pretty clear and binary and if you followed the rules, the right things happened. Um, but I was disavowed of that very, very, very quickly. How were you disavowed? What was the biggest challenge that you faced when speaking up? Well, <laughs> interestingly, I think the thing that most people jump on when they hear about the kind of that little journey of my, you know, speaking up is everyone's like, oh, you went and actually confronted Harvey Weinstein. And that wasn't, for me, that wasn't the hurdle. That was my immediate reaction and was not a reaction I thought about, it was just something I immediately went and did because I kind of, I was so upset and angry by what my colleague had told me and I needed to, I needed to go and speak to him immediately and say, what the hell happened? I, I mean, I wanted to kill, kill him, but I also kind of needed to see what his reaction was going to be. But I think for me, the worst part, the most frightening part was when I went to my senior, when I got back, because this happened at the Venice Film Festival, and I think that's an important thing to tell you because we were on the Lido, which is an island off Venice, 
So we were very isolated in terms of there was no police, there were no senior sort of Miramax employees who I could, who, who I could have spoken to. I took us both out of the situation of being with Harvey, or I certainly took my colleague out of it. And when we got back to the London office, the first thing I did was I went and reported it to my, my only senior. And I think that was, for me, the first really frightening moment was she didn't look shocked. And she just said to me, you need to get yourself a good lawyer. And that was the moment where I really, I think the first scale started to fall from my eyes. I didn't really know what I expected to happen, but I presumed that it would be taken out of my hands at that point and I would be protected and my colleague would be protected. And the fact that a senior employee of Miramax who had power and influence didn't even suggest that there was any complaints process that I could have gone through or HR. I didn't know about HR. We didn't have an HR department in the UK office of Miramax. But there was no suggestion that there was any recourse within the company. It was immediately I was on my own and that I needed to get legal representation. Then the really, for me, the really horrific thing happened, which was when I did speak to a lawyer, it was made very clear very quickly that there was no legal recourse. I presumed we would be able to go, we would, we would go to court. I imagine that was what was going to happen. My experience of legal proceedings or, or whistleblowing or misconduct at work was only things I might have seen in, on television. I had no, no experience otherwise. I was only 24, 25, 25. And in that first meeting, two things happened. The lawyer that I spoke to made it very clear to me that I had also, you know, been working under basically, you know, very deep misconduct behavioural misconduct from Weinstein in terms of my working conditions and the things that he had put me through and I guess I had kind of normalised that behaviour but then on the other hand it was also made very clear that we had no power really or access to justice and were told very clearly that if we wanted to go through the courts our lives would be completely ruined. Um, we had no physical proof. It would be he said, she said, that it was out of also UK jurisdiction. So they weren't giving me bad advice or the wrong advice. And I think in a way that was what was so scary, was that I presumed if I told the establishment that there was a potential rapist, you know, in the room, that, that, it, that they would be able to, that the law would be able to deal with that. And I think my discovery really that the system didn't work like that was was very hard and then it was exacerbated by the process which we went through of uh, negotiating what was only presented to us as a damages agreement it wasn't presented as a NDA a non-disclosure agreement I mean in fact NDA was only used in 2017 those words were only used to me in 2017 I mean I knew that I had confidentiality uh, clauses that I had to keep to, obviously, but the words non-disclosure agreement hadn't been used. What do you wish someone had told you before you blew the whistle in 1998? That's a difficult question, and it, I think it. <laughs> there are two different answers. There's 1998 and then there's 2017, <laughs> because in a way 2017 felt more like 
whistleblowing than it did in 1998. I think in 1998, I just thought I was, as I said, I just thought I was doing the correct thing. And I'm not sure that there's anything anybody could have told me that would have helped or made any difference. I mean, if I had had more access to legal advice, but really, ultimately, I also wasn't reporting a crime that had happened to me. So I had to be very much guided by my colleague and how far my colleague wanted to go. Because I could have, we could have pushed for a legal case, which we, in hindsight, I mean, we probably would have lost and it probably would have ruined our lives. And was that um, for a criminal prosecution or an employment tribunal claim? Either. I don't know if we had pushed for, you know, for legal action, once we got into conversation with with our lawyers, it would have depended on, you know, because we'd have had to have reported it to the Italian police. Yeah. Because it would have had to have gone through Italian law, you know, jurisdiction. It probably would have been an employment thing and it probably would have, I don't know. I mean, part of the reason I spoke up too was I felt like the my experience and my knowledge of Harvey's behaviour would strengthen my colleague's case. But I think if I had been alone, I would have, you know, blundered on. But it wasn't just up to me. (laughs) And actually, my colleague had some legal training. And I think she was probably much more realistic and aware of the legal environment than I was. And I had to ultimately be led by what she felt comfortable doing or not. I mean, she, she never told anybody what happened, not until... 2019. (laughs) So, you know, at that point, her biggest fear was the loss of her job and her not being able to get employment in the film industry again. And that shows how powerful, you know, the fears of of your reputation being ruined when you're young and starting out in a career are. You, You mentioned the difference between 1998 and then when you spoke up publicly in 2017. How do you feel that you were treated by the media when you spoke out in 2017? Uh, I had the full gamut of treatment, I think. I was absolutely terrified of journalists and the media. And it's interesting because now my relationship with the media is very different. You know, I see them as very powerful and useful and helpful, and they have very much helped in the campaign. But I'm also very aware that that is by the grace of God and that that could flip at any time. It still could flip. And while the media likes you, you know, it's a reciprocal. You can use them too, but I, but you never know when that might change. And I think I was very, very aware of that. And I was very mindful of what every single person, not just the media, every single person's agenda would be around this and and I think that as a as a whistleblower that is a very important thing to do in many ways you have to not listen not talk to too many people you have to have a very very clear mind and a very clear vision of what you are trying to do and what is right because you get so much advice and you get pushed and pulled so much and you have to stick to the integrity of what you're trying to speak about. And the moment you get pulled away from that, that, I think that's when you get into dangerous water. Because even if the press reports about you negatively, if you stick to your integrity and the truth of what you're trying to 
to highlight, then ultimately I do believe that right wins out. But that doesn't mean to say it's going to be a, an easy road. And I think that if what you're trying to do gets obscured in any way, that's when it, when it can become risky. And it's frightening because journalists will tell you all sorts of things to get you know, an angle that they want. And knowing who to trust is quite hard. <laughs> how, how would you define the media's duty to whistleblowers? Listen, the media are such a powerful tool for whistleblowers, and they are absolutely integral. But you have to find journalists that you trust, you trust in. And I think the media has a huge duty to protect and care for whistleblowers, but I think it's also very hard for them to, to do that. I mean, I've spoken to journalists since, you know, who are working with several very vulnerable sources, and, you know, and I now also work with sources that are dealing with journalists. And I know their concern is, is that it's very hard keeping that in mind with that individual, you know, that you need to check in with them constantly, that you need to be aware of their mental health and their safety the whole time, because, you know, they're not the only person you're speaking to. They're not the only job that you've got. You know, you've got editors and other stories in your day-to-day -day job. So for the whistleblower, talking to a journalist is the biggest thing in their day or the most momentous decision they're taking. Whereas for the journalist, the source is just one of many or... One, you know, that story is one story of many. And I think actually that journalists should, particularly investigative journalists, but all journalists should have training on how to deal with whistleblowing cases. I really do. I was very lucky. Everybody was pretty respectful and helpful. <laughs> but I think that's because it was a very high profile case. Yeah. And, you know, I had relative power. One, because it was around sexual assault, so they trod very carefully. And two, because it was such a hot story that I was able to say, I won't speak to you unless you give me editorial approval, which journalists won't ever do, really. But because it was such a hot story, everybody basically gave me, not a full editorial approval, but over my own words. And that's pretty unusual. And I think as a whistleblower, that is something that you should always insist on. What one measure or policy or attitude even would have improved your experience as a whistleblower, you know, either 1998 or 2017? Well, I think with all these things, it's, it's, very, it's very easy to look back in hindsight because when I spoke up in 98 and when I spoke up in 2017, I had no, I mean, there were, I don't know what, what safeguards or what organizations there were around in 98 but there certainly were organizations around in 2017 if i'd wanted support but i had no idea again because i didn't see what i was doing as whistleblowing yeah. i didn't know where i could go to for support and ultimately you know anybody i speak to now who is looking to speak up, I would advise to come and speak to protect. I would advise to, you know, there are lots of people that I would advise them to speak to that would really help make that decision because it is a big decision and you need people who understand that landscape who can give you advice. Nobody can tell you what to do. And I think certainly when I spoke up in 2017, I spoke to a few select friends, mostly lawyers, and all of them said, don't speak. Don't, don't do it. And actually, so in the end, I didn't really speak to very many people because I just had to work out within myself what was right. 
Um, and ultimately, that is a, a choice that only an individual can make, but you need to be armed with as much information as possible. You need to understand the risks you're taking personally, emotionally, legally. You need to understand all of that so that you can make a really considered decision. Did you feel that you had the understanding of, of what you were signing away when you were signing that no. NDA? No, no. And, and I understand, you know, all the arguments for this is that, well, if, you, if you've understood what you've signed, then, you know, it's explained to you. And, of course, my lawyer sat there and explained to me. But at that point, you know, you're basically being, you know, I'd gone through the process of sort of legal waterboarding. That's what it felt like. And at that point, the noise in your head, you just want to get out. You want to be over. I had tried to argue against what we were being signed, and I still, to this day, don't understand how I could have had my own representation, including counsel, who sat in that room and did not tell me that an agreement that says that I have to use my best endeavours not to aid the police, that I could not speak to the HMRC, that I could not speak to a doctor or a therapist, that they did not tell me essentially that was unenforceable. And the fact that the SRA have still not been able to do anything about that, to me, that just doesn't make any, any sense at all, which is why I think it's so important that guidance is changed. You know, I'm not angry with the lawyers, and I'm not angry with the regulators, but the system doesn't work. And actually, it's up to the regulators and to, you know, to the legislators to make improvements. Law has to be nimble. It has to move. It has to grow. And... Nobody's pointing any fingers here. We're just trying to make things better. And whistleblowers, essentially, people who speak up. I mean, I actually have a slight problem with the terms used around whistleblowing, you know, bravery and whistleblowing. It makes it sound really frightening. And actually, it should be normal to yeah. point out when stuff's going wrong, you know. And the, the argument of vexatious, you know, I mean, I, I can hardly even be bothered to give that airtime. But, you know, that is one of the biggest arguments. But as we know, statistically, vexatious claimants are very, very, very small. And if, you know, you don't, you don't have a system that, that works to the smallest, you know, minority. We don't not have a benefit system because some people cheat it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how does, it feel, how, does it, how does it feel when people call you brave? Um... <laughs> I understand why people use that term and I certainly wasn't being brave in 98. As I say, I just was doing what I thought was normal. Once we got into the legal wranglings, yes, I think maybe there was some bravery in there. But the reality is, I mean, that's on, you know, personally being called brave is a slightly different thing to what I think using that word in this environment is not helpful. I don't think it's helpful using the word brave in this environment. I think we need to take away, you know, the, the kind of grandiosity. To normalise it. it. Yeah, yeah, it needs to be normalised. Uh, and that's hard to do because at this point it is still, it's a tough road to take. And, and for some people it does require being brave. But the, the more you take away, you know, how we talk about things is a hugely important and has a huge impact on people's behavior and just changing the vocabulary around stuff really is very helpful. Um, perhaps a good juncture to ask about Can't Buy My Silence and how and why that came about. 
Well, I suppose I had been an accidental campaigner since 2017 when I broke my NDA, uh, and I had presumed that a little bit like I had in 98, I'd sort of tell the grown-ups, and then they'd go off and deal with it. But of course, I also, I suppose, at the time was 45, so I was a grown-up. <laughs> but I hadn't quite realised that. I was slightly surprised that kind of, you know, everyone kept handing it back to me to keep doing. Um, and that's something that I think is a bit of a problem, that it is always, the onus is always on the victim, and again, I don't like that, that vocabulary, but on the victim to do the work. Um, but we had, I mean, I had huge amounts of sort of movement and traction in, in, in those first couple of years because of the Me Too movement and because of the Weinstein story being the kind of the hottest story, anything to avoid talking about Brexit. <laughs> And Theresa May actually was very supportive of what was happening and wanted to, to stop the misuse of NDAs. There were two select committee inquiries. There was a big day's you know, consultation. Recommendations were made to the government. Everything was moving in the right direction. And then we had a leadership change. And that leadership change was pretty disastrous for a lot of people and for a lot of causes and for a lot of changes and certainly transparency and misconduct <laughs> were not, you know, were, were areas that weren't going to thrive under the Johnson government. And so all the work that had been done, all the money that had been spent on all of that work got kind of dropped to the bottom of the pile. And then COVID happened. And during COVID, I think, just before COVID happened, I had been working a lot with Maria Miller and Jess Phillips. And we had a strategy to really kind of close up and move this forward. These are both MPs for our Yes, listeners. so Jess Phillips is a Labour MP, and Maria Miller is a Conservative MP, and both of them have been in the Select Committee inquiry. They've been part of that committee, so we're very passionate about making change. Then COVID came, and obviously everything was shut down, and I think, actually, at that time, I would have very happily... I mean, I energetically would have liked to have walked away but the reality was to have basically, which I then, I only understood after two years of kind of going through this, having sacrificed my anonymity, which is quite a big deal, and you don't quite understand what that means till you have, and started this whole process, I couldn't look myself in the mirror or go back to a job or do anything without having at least tried my best to make sure that I shut that door behind me. And we were so close that I felt it was really necessary that I had to, to pick this up and, mm -hmm. and, and finish it, which meant starting a public-facing campaign. During lockdown, I was contacted by a professor from Canada called Julie McFarlane, who's British by birth, but has lived in Canada for the last 40 years. And... You know, I get contacted by quite a lot of people. I got contacted by quite a lot of people who'd had bad experiences with NDAs. But Julie's story really piqued my interest because it was another use of NDAs that I had not seen, where she'd not signed an NDA, but a colleague of hers had been given an NDA by their university. And because Julie had then spoken the truth about his behaviour, not knowing that the university had given him an NDA, he then sued her for defamation yeah. successfully. 
And so this is somebody, it just showed the ripples of damage that NDAs create, that even somebody who hasn't signed an NDA is being held under that NDA. And then the university wouldn't support her because they had signed the NDA, so they couldn't support her without breaking the NDA by giving the evidence that they had fired this professor. Okay. Okay. And that just blew my mind. And I was like, okay, here's another instance that I hadn't even been aware of. Yeah. And I think also give two quite cross women nothing to do, lockdown. <laughs> and so Julie and I spent quite a lot of time chatting on Zoom and Can't Buy My Silence was born. Well, a very highly productive campaign <laughs> to be born of two women chatting. Um, I mean, you've covered such impressive ground already. What's the, the dream outcome? If you could flick a switch. It's really, really simple that non-disclosure agreements are only used for the purpose that they were created for, which is protecting IP, trade secrets, commercially sensitive information. There is no place for a legal agreement to hide harm. And I'm not just talking about behavioural misconduct. I mean, NDAs hid, you know, baby form, you know, faulty the, the baby formula poisoning, it, they hide faulty breast implants, gambling addiction, I mean, faulty building practices. NDAs can hide and do hide multifarious sort of selection of things which cause harm. And a lot of these things are criminal. And I just can't see how anybody can argue that a legal agreement, it's appropriate for a legal agreement to do that. I mean, some would argue that there may be any number of reasons why confidentiality is sought and agreed, mm -hmm. and that NDAs can play an important role, particularly in the employment context, for mm -hmm. example. What would you say to that line of argument? Absolutely, confidentiality has a proper place, but confidentiality does not have a place in hiding harm. So I think one of the biggest misnomers is that settlement and confidentiality are linked, and they have become linked. They've become you know, completely tandem now. And they shouldn't be. A settlement agreement, which is perfectly fair within a workplace dispute where it's, you know, two people can't agree, a settlement agreement is to agree to not take any further legal action. That settlement agreement is for the harm that has been caused to you, the damage that has been caused to you or perceived to have been caused to you, so that an argument can be settled. A settlement agreement is not about buying your silence. That makes you complicit to further crime, to further abuse. Look, that is not appropriate. At no point am I saying that settlement agreements shouldn't exist. And there can be agreed confidentiality within that. If you don't want to speak about the figure, I don't see that that's a massive problem. You know, if you want to agree to, you know, not speak on social media, that's not a problem. What you can't have is an agreement that says that you can't speak to your friends and family, that you can't explain to a, another employer why you left your last job, that you can't speak to a therapist, that you can't speak to anybody about what's happened to you, that you can't go to a, a help group, you know, an NHS group therapy group, you know. Those things are inappropriate on every level. You know, there, there is, you can have a one-sided confidentiality agreement when you settle so that, you know, the victim is protected because that's the other big argument is yeah. that the victim needs protection absolutely the victim can have protection the victims generally are not people who want to go around talking about it they don't want to talk about it i don't think i've dealt with anybody who's wanted to go to the press 
the reason people go to the press in the end is because they've been silenced, because of the injustice, because of the continued abuse of being silenced. That's when they go to the press, because it has not been dealt with correctly. Where does you know, the existing safeguards, which we've talked about, that actually enable someone to raise public interest concerns and talk about things that are in the public interest, either by Section 43J and the Employment Rights Act or the Common Law Public Interest Defence. Why are those legal safeguards that mean that you can't be prevented from raising those concerns if they are in the public interest, even if you signed an NDA? Why are they not enough? Well, I think the biggest reason is people don't know about it. It's knowledge. I think also it's quite difficult to, to, to go down that road of what's in the public interest or not in the public interest. And again, I kind of think in some ways, I mean, the, the biggest problem is, is people knowing that. And, you know, again, I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone who signed an NDA whose lawyer has brought this up with them. You know, and that's a huge issue. Why are they not bringing that up? Secondly, I think that whole process of trying to work out if it's in the public interest or not is quite a traumatic and difficult process for people to go through. But thirdly, in a way, those protections aren't, aren't a problem. The problem is, is there should not be an agreement in the first place. There should not be a tool that can hide harm legally. And I think a lot of the issues around this is we're always looking the wrong way down the telescope. It's a very simple thing. And I'm not saying that this will solve all the problems. But if you don't have tools that enable and allow um, perpetrators of abuse to continue behaving with impunity, you know, all that does is it grows that behavior. If you take those tools away, the behavior will actually start mon you know, monitoring itself. You're not going to do something if you know that there is a consequence. If you know that you can hide it, well, who cares? You've already achieved so much with Can't Buy My Silence in the UK, in Canada, in Ireland. What's, I guess, what, what makes you optimistic, if at all, uh, for the future? Well, I think the optimism lies in as much as we keep coming up against huge brick walls with what we're doing, we also are making change. And I kind of... In, I sort of have this weird schizophrenic mixture of just believing that the change is going to happen because it is and because it's right and because so far we have managed to achieve so much against all the odds and against everything that everybody tells me. I still, you know, I sat next to a, a barrister the other day who literally laughed himself off his chair about what I was doing and gave me 4,000 reasons why what I was doing was completely ridiculous. He didn't even know that we'd, we'd you know, change the law in for, for higher education. For the benefit of our listeners, that amendment to the higher education bill, can you just explain what that yes. was? Yes, so we managed to present an amendment to uh, freedom of speech higher education bill, which has gone through, has royal assent, so is, is essentially it's now law, which prohibits any, or any higher education um, Institution. Institution, thank you. <laughs> Any institution of higher education to use a non-disclosure agreement in cases of sexual harassment, misconduct, bullying, discrimination. And this isn't just between staff and students, lecturers and students. It's also between 
anybody who comes onto the university campus, so visiting speakers, any staff within that university. Now, that amendment was adopted by the government. It went in as a Labour amendment initially, but it was adopted by the government. And the government have, have acknowledged that the use of NDAs in this way is inappropriate. So that's the first law of its kind in the UK. And I genuinely believe that there is only one direction that we can keep moving after that. Well, Zelda, thank you very much for talking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure was all mine. <laughs> <laughs>